Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared and host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B SaaS industry thought leaders, executives, and people just like you to discuss what metrics, KPIs, and benchmarks they use to enable better data-driven metrics-informed decisions that accelerate revenue performance and increase enterprise value. Now, on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Today, we are joined by Byron Dieter, Managing Partner at Bessemer Ventures. We are extremely fortunate to have Byron as a guest to talk all things SaaS and cloud metrics. Who better to discuss this topic than a founding father of SaaS metrics, starting back to 2008 when Byron first published The 10 Laws of Being Sassy, evolving to The 10 Laws of Cloud Computing, and including the six C's of cloud finance, the BVP Cloud, index into cloud 100. In today's episode, we will be covering three main areas, SaaS metrics and the evolution to cloud metrics, the six C's of cloud finance, and a crystal ball from Byron into the future. What's the next big thing? Byron, thanks for joining us today, and please take a moment to give a brief background to our listeners. Ray, it's uh, great to be with you again, and uh, certainly a lot of appreciation for what you've done for the industry through the years as one of the thought leaders here. Myself, I've had the good fortune of working in and around this area for almost two decades now, both as an operator and as an investor. I started off as a early cloud CEO uh, with a company called Trigo Technologies back when it was in the ASP and SaaS world. And then I came over to work with Bessemer in 2005 to help accelerate our global cloud efforts. And I had the good fortune of working with Bessemer through that time as they were my largest shareholder and investor. So I got to know them very well through that process. And I've since been able to go on and now work with several dozen cloud CEOs in this next wave of the cloud market evolution, including many that have gone on to be public companies themselves now. Yeah, small little companies like LinkedIn and Twilio, right? We've worked with some very good ones along the way, uh, uh, DocuSign and SendGrid and Box and PagerDuty and a long list that my partners and I have been able to uh, collaborate with. Well, it's a real impressive roster of investments that you made. And you know, Byron, you and I go back to those days at Trigo where you were a, an entrepreneur and founded a enterprise ASP kind of cloud company. But then you jumped into Bessemer and you really kind of jumped headfirst into the SaaS and cloud investing. What stimulated you to take that risk and jump so, you know, headfirst into cloud and SaaS? I saw the benefits firsthand, I think is the easy answer, and got religion. Uh, one of the, the real fights we hit our head against every day and tried to, you know, to carry on was this idea that there was a better way than the licensed on-prem software world of the prior years. And it was still early in that evolution and eventually the revolution. And so we had an uphill battle in almost every meeting we went into, whether it was financing or talking with customers. And yet I came out of that experience absolutely convinced that for both parties, the software vendor and for the customer, that cloud was a better overall package, both in terms of business model and tech delivery model. And I wanted to go all in. And so the vast majority of my work at Bessemer Venture Partners has been around cloud computing. I've dabbled in some frontier tech and some internet infrastructure, but the vast majority of what I do day in and day out is trying to find the next great cloud entrepreneurs and helping them realize their vision. Well, because you jumped into SaaS and cloud so early, 
there really wasn't a playbook of here's how to build an amazingly successful SaaS company. In fact, since I've been following you for so long, you had to create some of the key performance indicators and metrics that both investors and operators could use to say, how's my SaaS business trending? I remember you came out with the 10 laws of being sassy and then the 10 laws of cloud and now Bessemer six C's of cloud finance. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about how those KPIs and metrics evolved from your perspective as an investor and then from an operator's perspective? Certainly. Well, I, I think you hit on the, the key catalyst first, which is, is probably worth double clicking on, which is that early on in this industry, it was a pretty small community. And we all felt like we were making it up as we were going along. And, and a large part of the idea of trying to pull together the thinking and share it out was just that knowledge transfer and acceleration for the community. And so we did a lot of CEO conferences and events. We did a lot of white papers and small dinners and discussions of just what are you learning? What can you share? How can you help save time for me and for your followers here to just be bigger, faster, stronger in their own pursuits of greatness? And the 10 laws of being sassy was really a white paper that came out of our first large scale cloud CEO conference. And this was collating the wisdom of those CEOs and trying to share that out for the group in a way that was tangible and actionable. And we've, through the years, not only evolved that document, we had a fun time you know, turning out the, the 10th anniversary edition a little while back of that and doing some refreshes, but also a lot of the spirit of the sharing. Like time and time again, I'm blown away by how excited cloud CEOs are, and frankly, you know, CEOs in tech more generally, but specific for this industry, to share their learnings and help each other. And even sometimes when there are challenger companies that have some overlap, they're willing to just, you know, to step back and say, hey, big picture, these are the things that matter. And it's been really fun to have a front row seat to this innovation and to be able to work with many of these thought leaders and to help them share their learnings out to the next generation. Well, I have a question for you before we jump into 2020 and your six C's of cloud finance. I think back to the 10 laws of being sassy and you introduce metrics and concepts like, you know, CAC and CLTV, customer lifetime value. You talked a little bit about separating hunters and farmers. I'm not going to go through all of them, but Byron, what's interesting and all the way back to 08, when you first penned the 10 laws of being sassy, it appears that most of those metrics still are pretty important. Wouldn't you say so? Very much so. And I think that's one of the surprises is how enduring it has been and the learnings have been. We've evolved a few of the points and we're all still very much learning as an industry. But I think that is probably the most surprising thing is how constant some of the core tenants have been and remain today. Well, let's talk about 2020 and we've been through quite a ride, but what's amazing is with all the IPOs and the cloud index and it's up almost 100% over in a year, right? You kind of introduced a concept that I hadn't really thought much about before at a Sage Intech webinar I attended, the six C's of cloud finance. Tell us a little bit about those six C's of cloud finance and specifically, which ones do you think are really important for you as an investor, but also through the lens of an operator? Are there different C's more important to an operator versus an investor? Very much so. And one of the core tenets of the first 10 laws of being sassy was this introduction of new financial metrics for cloud computing. And this was one of the things that Wall Street really struggled with early on was just how do you measure and value cloud businesses. And so part of our work was trying to share our internal Bessemer thinking with the external world to help with that education because as a large cloud shareholder, we wanted to help Wall Street understand what we saw in these businesses and why gap accounting was a punishing 
framework and an unfair framework for looking at really what was the annual recurring revenue, the cash flow characteristics, the future margin characteristics, et cetera, of these businesses that were so compelling. And as the firm with the most cloud IPOs in the venture industry, we actually, we certainly had a selfish interest of that where we're large shareholders and we wanted to benefit from the market awareness, but also as a service working with our entrepreneurs and their CFOs and their teams, this was a core element. And so we had one of the laws talking about financial metrics, but time and time again, people were asking to blow those out and explain in more detail. And truthfully, we have dozens that we track for our various companies and most of our companies end up putting up you know, their own dashboards where often they'll have like their core secret metric and certain things that they track. And we talk through the full menu with them to understand what's right for their business. But specifically, there have been you know, five or six top level metrics that end up being really good high level indicators as you're flying the plane to see overall how you're doing. And then companies choose to drill down as they like. And so we've specifically gone really deep on the six C's of cloud finance. And then we streamlined things a little bit in this year's version of the 10 laws where we talked about the five C's of cloud finance. And those are, you know, somewhat interchangeable. Again, you can have, you know, three to 300, but we find that there tends to be a pretty steady core that we come back to time and time again. Yeah, one of them in your six C's is churn. And I look at churn the opposite way. I look at gross dollar retention and net dollar retention. And gross dollar retention is the amount of ARR being driven by a cohort of customers that were here at the beginning of an accounting period and are still here at the end of an accounting period without including upsells, cross-sells. And net dollar retention is looking at that same cohort, but adding an expansion revenue. Byron, I have a question for you. I looked at 35 10Qs and 10Ks over the last few weeks, and I found no fewer than seven different naming conventions for net dollar retention, and God knows how many calculations. How do you go about <laughs> ensuring their standardization of calculation for your portfolio companies is such an important metric? It's pretty amazing. And I think you, you hit on uh, one of these amusing elements where uh, as long as they footnote it, people can sort of disclose whatever they want. But I'll tell you one of the benefits of being a private investor and a board member and having insights is we can, we absolutely can go in and have that candid discussion of, hey, wh what is the most insightful metric for us collectively to track? And you nailed it, that we absolutely dive in and look at the cohorted gross and net dollar retention. We're looking at, you know, submetrics by segmentation and those things. And of those things that you highlighted, I do think that the cohorted slice is often the most overlooked and the most deceptive for earlier stage hypergrowth companies. And for a fast growing company, it can underestimate your churn by two or three X if you're going through this hypergrowth period and you're thinking of the denominator as your current ARR, but you're forgetting the fact that maybe these customers are on annual contracts or at least they're buying in an annual cycle. And so really what your cohorted base should show you is that your churn rate of the last year's base is much higher than you think. And it could suggest some problems looming. The reverse is when you see really compelling net dollar retention and you see people that love it, that are buying up, that are expanding. That's one of the most powerful signs of product market fit and fundamental customer love. And one of our signs that you can absorb some hit in, on your cost of sales. You can be more creative with experimenting with go-to-market channels, et cetera, because fundamentally those who find it love it, they buy more and they stick with you. And that's one of those great defining moments for our entrepreneurs when they feel that starting to take hold and, and really a positive sign for future value creation. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the timing of net dollar retention. I was looking at a lot of the most recent S1s and of course some of the 10Ks for like the Twilio's and Datadogs of the world. 
And I'm seeing net dollar retention in 140 to 160% range. But when I look at private SaaS and cloud companies, Byron, and I just was looking at the key bank capital markets, first half 20 SaaS metrics, you're seeing private company net dollar retention is more than 100 to 103%. Why such a large chasm? I think it's just selection bias. When you look at a, a Twilio, a Shopify, a Snowflake, you know, companies of that zone, they just have very different upsell characteristics. And that's what drives these super premium multiples. I don't think those are fair benchmarks for the average SaaS company to hold, them, hold themselves to. I, I wish we did. I wish I could say those were averages across our portfolio, but even our, for our great companies, you don't typically see that. What we strive for is, is net negative churn, where you have, you know, uh, or positive net dollar retention. And for enterprise companies or for pay-as-you-go type models that are consumption-based, we like to see that into the double digits where you're you know, doing 110% plus. For SMB-oriented companies or for you know, higher turn companies, just getting above 100% is often victory. And you can build great businesses as long as your fundamental base grows every quarter independent of new sales and marketing. Obviously, if you're fortunate enough to have one of these businesses that's running at 140% plus, then that's not a reason to go fire your sales and marketing team because you know the core is absolutely gold, but people are greedy and you want to see how much you really can push it. And every new sale you land, of course, has the potential to then carry through that same lifetime value equation and compound over time. And that's one of the beauties of Amazon Web Services and some of these leaders that have charted the course for other cloud businesses to follow is that customers really are buying more. And this concern of stickiness is a non-issue if you have a great product. Well, I'm sure a lot of entrepreneurs are very excited to know you're not going to hold them to the <laughs> standards that a Twilio or a Zoom has built with their free cash flow. Yeah, Zoom, Zoom has put up new numbers that, that are the envy of all entrepreneurs, I assure you. Hey, a little more, let's drill down a little bit more into the six C's. One of yours is you look at CAC payback period. So maybe you can explain for the listeners who may not understand how to calculate CAC payback, what it is. But then, Byron, why you don't have CAC ratio as one of your first six? Because as an operator that used to lead marketing, sales, and customer success, CAC ratio, or the inverse, the magic number, was a key KPI for me to decide when to accelerate investment and go to market customer acquisition. So talk a little bit about that. Certainly. So CAC payback is a way to think of the time to repay your fully burdened sales and marketing expenses, and we add on a gross margin basis. So you take essentially that gross margin contribution of the new customer, and then you're looking at how much did it cost me to earn that? And essentially you're coming up with a time period calculation. Oftentimes you're looking for, you know, within two years, if it's an enterprise company and for an SMB company, it may be six to 18 months. That's highly correlated. Obviously it is the inverse of the CAC ratio. And the reason we do that, frankly, is it's just more consumable for the company at large, and it's an easier to understand number. And so that's why we package it in months, not in a raw numerical score. But the other thing that the magic number misses is, is gross margin. And we absolutely think that gross margin needs to be included in this because a payments business has very different CAC and CLTV characteristics than a raw enterprise licensed cloud business. And they could be great businesses, but one could be running at 50% gross margin. The other could be running at 85% gross margin. And your ability to invest to get that dollar of revenue is proportionally very different based on those margin characteristics. And so a two-year payback can be very different if you have an 85% gross margin beneath that. And so 
there are a number of metrics and attributes around the go-to-market rhythm, the payback periods, the customer acquisition costs, and the lifetime value that absolutely are important. And you'll find that the best operators are extremely knowledgeable and comfortable working with those numbers. They slice and dice it. They can tell you, you know, different views that they have on it and why. They can tell you the trends, et cetera. And fundamentally, what we love about it is it helps you play offense aggressively, which is I just came off a board call today where the team comes in and says, we're going to up our marketing budget because we're exceeding our targets for CAC and, and CLTV. And those are the discussions you love. I love it when you get a quantitative CMO to come in and pound the table and say, you know, I want 5 million more bucks uh, to go spend because I can give you a multiple of that back. And that's a great use of venture capital. It's a great use of balance sheet, even debt capital sometimes, where you've got the instrumentation to then comfortably know we've got a money machine here. And then it's just a question of how much can we step on the gas with management bandwidth and operational bandwidth to absorb it. I still remember talking to you, gee whiz, it must have been three years ago. And one of our board members was very insistent that we kept our new name customer CAC ratio in the $1.40, $1.50 range. We were growing 50% plus a year. And you're kind of said, hey, Ray, if you're growing 50, 60% a year, I'm comfortable if the CAC ratio even gets closer to two, which means from a CAC payback period, it might be 24 to 30 months. But if you have in hyper growth, that's okay. You still support that? I definitely do for businesses with high retention. And that's why I love that you came at it first on the retention question, which is as an entrepreneur or as an investor, that's what I look at first, which is how are the customers behaving? Are they loving the product? Do we have something here that resonates? And then if so, okay, you know, how aggressive can we be in tackling this market and taking it? If you have, you know, let's say 100% or better renewal rate. So you feel like things are working. You've got this net negative churn dynamic. Then it comes down to, okay, how fast can we scale this? And if you're running at, at you know, a two-year payback with where you've got favorable renewal rates and upsells, you know, that feels like a model you can lean into. The one thing I would highlight, though, is you want to look at not only average, but also marginal. And here's what I mean by that. A lot of cloud businesses these days benefit from organic and from earned traffic. And so you get a lot of free signups and for freemium businesses or API businesses or some of these hybrids, you actually end up getting a lot of quote unquote free customers, meaning they come because of the brand you've built or the referral network or channels or those things that are unrelated necessarily to incremental paid sales and marketing. Now, separate from that are leads and ultimately customers that you influence by virtue of spending money on a marginal basis to scale up more sales and marketing. And so the important thing is to think of it as both numbers, but specifically for your investment period, a very rational conclusion could be that, hey, we're going to target an 18-month payback on our CAC, but we're going to be willing to go up to a 30-month payback on our marginal level or a 24-month payback and track that very specifically to say that you know, we feel with a low cost of capital and, and these things that we can be pretty aggressive in acquiring, but not reckless. And so what you don't want to do is fool yourself if you have a lot of organic traffic and say, hey, we've got a two-year payback, let's spend like crazy, when in reality, your marginal payback is four years plus, because then it's actually not efficient in the incremental spend, and you'd probably be better using those dollars elsewhere, and maybe even on product-led investment for growth or in earned and influenced media. So it's a complex equation. But the beauty is if you have an executive team who's capable of having these conversations and knows what the levers are so that then their jobs become take out the bottlenecks 
and everyone's working at ways to say, okay, we've got the analytics where we can spend more, the payback's good, now what are the bottlenecks? Is it implementation? You know, is it SDRs or BDRs or variable marketing spend or what is it? And let's go attack those together so that we can not just you know, achieve our business plan or our goals, but actually achieve the full potential of the company, which may be far in excess of the numbers that you'd set out for yourselves or your board or your investors or your team. And Byron, you said something, I think, for our listeners, because we have a wide variety of listeners to the Metrics to Measure podcast from those entrepreneurs who may be seed funded to Series A, Series B, Series C, and even public companies. But there's nuances for every organization, both the stage, the type of company, and your customer acquisition strategy. And I think it's really important to hear what Byron said, which is don't be so strident that this one KPI must fit every aspect of my business, correct? Very much so. And the interesting thing is that as you think about the menu of KPIs that are best for you, certainly you'll have some that are probably, you know, taken from the the five or six C's that end up being your your dashboard. But oftentimes you'll find that you've got a North Star that is product related, usage related, consumption related, et cetera, that isn't directly quantitative, but it's tied to value. You know, for Twilio, it was messages sent in the early years. For DocuSign, it was number of signed envelopes. For Shopify, it was customer GMV as their driver for ultimately Shopify monetization and business value. And so the important thing is figure out what your North Star could be. It could be product usage. It could be API calls. It could be you know, content in the system. It could be integrations. There's a number of things that our portfolio companies look to. And often they're different company to company in terms of what their secret KPI or their North Star is. But then that ultimately carries through to the other metrics and all businesses ultimately should care about free cash flows. But there's a lot of things that are much more insightful and strategic that we collectively focus on earlier in a company's life. And for those listeners doing a Google search and a 10 levels of cloud, that secret KPI or the true North Star, that's number six on the 10 levels of cloud. (laughs) You're, You're exactly right. And that was one that we evolved into, if you will. I think that's a learning over the last many years of working with these great companies where it wasn't as obvious to us. I remember Adam Miller at Cornerstone On Demand helped us coin CMRR back 13 years ago. And that in and of itself was an insightful metric. This idea of committed or contracted monthly recurring revenue and ultimately CARR and ARR, those were novel concepts. And we worked with you know, Sarah Fryer, who was an analyst at Goldman Sachs at the time, who was working on the Cornerstone IPO and helped put out Goldman's first cloud computing report and built a model around CMRR and CARR. And together we helped you know, drive home this notion of the metrics that matter in cloud and how different they are. Those things are now wonderfully becoming conventional wisdom. And this idea of CARR is a front and center metric, certainly for enterprise cloud companies, for for SMB or transactional companies, you don't even need the C, just ARR is sufficient because the lag between contracts and recognized is very short. But that's now a core concept for all these great cloud entrepreneurs. And they're getting much more nuanced and thinking through what are the metrics that really are my light post here to guide the company? And what are the things that we can rally around to show what will ultimately then come in the form of CARR and ARR? And oftentimes, I mean, certainly at the seed stage or concept stage, we're funding businesses that often don't even have product yet or have very early product. But even the the series A's and B's, they may be early in monetization, but what we're reacting to is this North Star metric that's so compelling that there's something in there that shows that customers are loving this, using it, and wanting more, and that we're willing to bet will ultimately then lead to paying customers in real value. 
you know, you said something about product-led growth. And I just did a podcast the other day with OpenView Partners, and they're one of the thought leaders out there on product-led growth. And this is where an organization has a product engagement model, such as Zendesk, where you go, you might get a freemium version or a low-cost version, and then it organically grows throughout the organization before you have a enterprise-wide agreement. What do you think about the product-led growth phenomenon? Do you see that as a primary distribution model going forward for cloud companies, Byron? We definitely see it as a compelling option and a lot of credit to the OpenView folks for some of their thoughts in the industry and good relationships with them, including Mackie, who's a BVP alum over there and, and a lot of similar thinking. And as entrepreneurs come into the market looking for their go-to-market rhythm, the important thing is to know what your true north is and to run that playbook. The hard part is where you have confusion and you're, you've got an SMB product, but you're trying to run an enterprise playbook and you're trying to measure yourself to a, a three-year payback and 110% net upsell rate. When in reality, you should be thinking of it in terms of a six to 12 month payback and probably a 90% renewal rate, but a much higher velocity. And there's a path to awesomeness through a lot of different paths. Twilio looks very different from Coupa or Workday and Zendesk is very different from ServiceNow. But uh, these businesses, they're all fantastic. They're all multi, multi-billion dollar wonderful companies, but they have very different product go-to-market models. And I specifically say that product informs the go-to-market model and how they drive it. And so what we're seeing more and more is that companies are comfortable testing these product-led models and are trying to unlock a dev evangelism framework or freemium model or a higher velocity, lower lift go-to-market model. But I'll also note that many companies are raising enough capital so that if they don't fully crush it on that measure, they can still default to one of the more traditional models, an SDR, BDR, mid-market segment, or even an enterprise model. We have a company that we recently funded where that is very consciously the strategy. We know we've got an enterprise play here, but we're testing right now the mass market product-led dev evangelism framework because we believe it'll be much more fruitful if it works but we're not freaked out if it doesn't because we're convinced enough of the product in the space that we'll make the enterprise model work. And we've funded them for two years. We've got time. We've got a team that's patient. They've built a great product and we're going to go experiment. And that's part of the fun of entrepreneurship is don't force it on the market, build a great product and let the market show you the path to the right distribution and certainly incremental features that resonate with them. Yeah. Experimentation is great earlier in the life cycle of an organization, but I think back to enterprise software companies who saw the recurring revenue model of SaaS and said, ooh, I'm 100 million, but maybe I need to convert to a recurring revenue model. And it really impacts, it can impact net income and even perceived growth rates until you make that transition. Do you think the same challenge exists for enterprise sales-led SaaS companies who think they want to pivot and try to become a PLG model? That's intriguing. First, let me, let me violently agree with the first premise, which is that I've got immense respect for you know, the Steve Sings and Keith Crocs of the world who took Concur or an Ariba model and shifted and evolved it from an on-prem model to a great cloud business. Like, those transitions were really hard and they had to be extremely visionary to make the bets and be willing to take a lot of market pain to go through those journeys, but it paid off beautifully. And you're right that it takes immense organizational commitment and a lot of pain to go through it. I don't think it's nearly as extreme to go through this product evolution and sales evolution, but it's equally hard. 
meaning the organizations, you can infuse some of that DNA, you can launch lighter weight products, you can do some different things, and you can work through the market iteration. It's just very hard for any one company to serve multiple ends of this SMB to enterprise spectrum. And it's probably the most common debate that we have in board meetings is this strategic core ideal customer profile or really what that sweet spot is. And the wonderful thing is it evolves. And so it's not a static answer. And the team, the go-to-market rhythm is very different as companies progress. But I would say the most common and the easier method of the two is to start at the low end of the mid-market with a reasonably high velocity product and work your way up. But we absolutely have companies that try all different versions of this. You know, years ago, Eloqua was a company I was on the board of, and we started Enterprise Down, and DocuSign definitely started Enterprise Down, and a number of companies have great success doing that. You know, you mentioned Zendesk before, or Shopify, or some of these that have really started SMB up. And so there are beautiful models now and beautiful learnings to take from these. The important thing is to not force it and to understand how you fit and how you evolve and to have the go-to-market team that can do this. And that's why the role of sales is now much more strategic than it's ever been. This person needs to understand the metrics and the marketing interrelationship to know what model they're tuning. They've got to have you know, the flexibility to do everything from a very low-touch sales assist high-velocity model to a thoughtful consultative solutions selling enterprise model and then pick the right mix in between. Now, for companies that are cranking and at speed and have one working, then perhaps, you know, then they may go looking for the CRO to supercharge it. But for the team that's building along the way, being open-minded, strategic, and flexible is often one of the most important combinations of skills for a sales rep, which is a new norm for sales professionals. Oh, yeah. And I've always told the sales organizations I've been responsible for, you are a great voice of the market. And your feedback on what the prospector is saying, what the customer is saying, should go directly into product because that's going to decrease cycle time to get the market what they want to pay for. Absolutely. And there is such a more informed audience out there these days because they're doing pre-sales work on their own. They're doing web searches. They're looking at your competitors. They may have already downloaded and tried your product. They may have things in production that your team doesn't even know about because they did it from a Gmail account or something like that. And so the level of sophistication is way up. And as a result, their questions are more insightful, where they're pushing is more insightful, and they're going to help take you to the answer. If you have a good customer feedback loop through sales, through marketing, through customer success, through implementation, et cetera, you will find out what to build next, and they will help you prioritize the product roadmap. They may not articulate it in a, in a tangible way, meaning if you listen to the problem, you may then understand the solution that you should build versus understanding their specific feature requests and building those verbatim because they may miss some leapfrog ways to solve it in a better long-term way. But fundamentally, I think you're absolutely right that the sales teams and go-to-market teams are much more connected to customer needs and then to the product teams internally. And that's part of this agile cycle. Our software companies are delivering pushes to production often many times a day, whereas in the old software world, you had this you know, release date drawn on the whiteboard and it was months away and it was a monumental lift and you were doing software reports and these things. You know, at this point, some of our companies, I think Twilio literally does thousands of pushes to production per day. They're doing micro pushes of code. And so your ability to be responsive and nimble is just orders of magnitude higher. 
Yeah. I remember in your initial 10 laws of being sassy, you said it's a service and you need to act that way. You can't just sell the software and leave it. Every day your customers are voting with their decision to renew or not renew their subscription. Yes. And just a comment on that. I'd say initially we meant that as a reminder for customer success and relationship and those things. It also does carry through to product though in terms of frequency and update. And it is an offensive weapon, not just a relationship reminder and a customer success rally cry. I'm going to ask about one more of the C's of cloud finance and that's cash conversion score. And I know that's one that I think you've added a little bit later, but does cash conversion score as a KPI matter as much in a series A under 5 million AR companies it does in a series B, C, 25 million above company? It doesn't as a trailing metric. It does as a forward indicator in terms of capital efficiency. And I guess it's a reminder with my founder hat on. And typically we're early stage investors and we have, we're essentially buying common stock. It may be a series A or series B preferred, but the preferences are plain vanilla. And we're, you know, we're going to sit junior often to whatever capital you raise down the line. So we think like common investors. And the point is, the goal isn't to raise more money. The goal is to build a great business that your customers finance. And so it's just a steady reminder that dilution is not a great thing. And you don't want to get caught up in this cadence of let's raise capital every year. And, you know, all these people are calling me, let's raise more and more money. What you want to do is be very focused when you raise it, how you use it. And venture capital is dilutive. But it makes sense if you have really efficient ways to deploy it where you get a multiple back. And that's where it wins for everyone. You know, we're frothy, optimistic investors, so we generally pay pretty good prices, but we're obviously betting that the stock's going to be worth a lot more in the coming years. And the reason why that's still a good trade for the entrepreneur to sell it to us now is because we're going to help get you there and we're going to go on this journey together. And so the cash conversion score is a way of measuring that efficiency. It's a way of saying, how far can you get with how little capital you can invest? And, you know, it's in real estate, it's this idea of, you know, your return on assets or return on invested capital. It's a concept that is a tried and true finance concept. But when you read TechCrunch every day or watch CNBC, sometimes they glorify these financings so much that you forget that really success is not needing to do more financings and getting to the point where customers are so in love with the product and you've got good gross margins and free cash flow and things that financings are totally optional and you're doing them for really strategic things of aggressive investment or acquisition or as part of an IPO or those things to fully play offense and to capture incremental opportunity. One a question I thought of before we wrap up here, and that is there's so many alternative financing mechanisms today, you know, whether it's ARR-based financing, safes, et cetera. As a equity-based VC investor, What's your recommendation to entrepreneurs and CEOs about alternative financing strategies? There are a ton of financing options out there. It literally is the best time in history to be a tech founder and an entrepreneur, particularly in software cloud. And so that's the opening framework. With that said, I would add that you shouldn't take added financing risk given all the execution, market risk, and business building risk you're taking. And what I mean by that is don't overthink it. The valuations are so damn good these days. You can, if it's a good business, you're going to raise a ton of money at a great valuation and trying to incrementally optimize early on for the incremental value is dangerous. With that said, once things get moving, once the flywheel spinning, once you've got predictability, good renewal rates, et cetera, 
there's a lot of unlocks in terms of creative financing you can do. And so absolutely our companies will take advantage of debt lines. They'll take it, you know, bullet debt, ARR financings, those sorts of things. And in particular, as an example, if you think about it, where if your business was running at break even and you had a little cash cushion otherwise, but you followed this, the chain of this conversation and you had you know, a CAC payback period of 18 months and really favorable you know, customer lifetime value. And if you could borrow two years of debt and go out and get 5 million bucks and had a bullet term of two years, and you were confident that your customers would pay back within 18 months, then the answer is go take as much money as you can and invest it in your funnel. Put all 5 million of that into your funnel, get the customer that's going to fully pay that back in 18 months, and then everything else is gravy. You're going to keep that 5 million of ARR that you've built up, or technically a little under uh, 3 million of ARR that you've built up every forward year. And it's going to perform at a 70% gross margin level. And you're going to get some 10 to 20x multiple on that. And so you should absolutely do it. Now, the answer may still be you should do equity over debt because you want to be aggressive and you're still burning money or you know, there's hybrids. But I would say you've got a lot more options available and you should think of it in terms of what's my return on that capital going to be and how much risk am I willing to take to accomplish it? Now, that's great advice. So let's step back from all these metrics and KPIs that I could talk for days about and let's bring out our crystal ball. You have been great at evolving early market trends. Even Eloqua, that a lot of our listeners may not even understand, they were marketing automation before Marketo kind of set the new standard or HubSpot. So if you step back today and kind of look three to five years out, are there any segments that you're saying, Ray, I think this is really interesting. It could, it could fundamentally transform, if not dramatically evolve, the cloud segment? Boy, it is such a cool time in our industry right now that I've got a, a long, long list. To try to put some structure, though, to my enthusiasm, I would probably anchor on our State of the Cloud report, which we put out each year, and, and you can Google Bessemer's 2020 State of the Cloud report, and we specifically called out six predictions, and we release this every year at Saster, and this year Saster was virtual, but you'll see it up online, and you can click through it or watch the video. But there were six specific predictions that we call out. And these, you can hold us accountable. Look at the prior years and you'll see that we actually do invest behind these in a very compelling way. And if I was an entrepreneur, these are six of the areas I would be whiteboarding with my CTO to explore. And real quickly, it's future of work will be remote. It's privacy debt as a new tech debt. It's globalization of cloud. It's B2B transactions moving online. It's the API universe. And then it's the automation at scale phenomenon. And if I just double click on two of them, I'll pick you know, somewhat at random, but the B2B transactions moving online is this combination of vertical SaaS and marketplaces in this really compelling way that is a wildly pleasant surprise in terms of TAM and market size. And we saw it with our investments in Shopify and in Toast on the restaurant side and MindBody and health and wellness and Procore and construction and service titan in plumbing, HVAC, and electrical, just time and time again, we're seeing how big these vertical SaaS businesses can be. And if you look at a business like an ACV auctions and automotive, they've added a marketplace component to this that is really, it goes back to 2000 when Forrester predicted 10,000 vertical marketplaces were going to emerge and they were off by about 9,999 but the trend was right. And we're finally seeing it happen where the brokers are coming out of these industries and the transaction costs are coming down, the speeds are going up. And I think that's a wonderful thing for it. 
And at the other end, I'll just double click on the API universe comment, which is that more and more services being encapsulated in low friction programmable interfaces that mimic Amazon Web Services, Twilio, Stripe, SendGrid, Auth0, Zapier, these types of companies that are the early leaders. And we are going to see a dozen plus IPOs in this space in the coming years. There's just so much potential that's lurking under the surface. You see it in the Cloud 100 list that we publish each year with Forbes, which we just put out in early September. And you see it in the next wave of financings that are happening. We just announced Courier is one of our portfolio companies that, that very much is in this world. It's just absolutely is this wonderful unlock of, of developer access and empowerment and buying behaviors that we think will lead to a meaningful pillar of cloud monetization and a large slice of public cloud market cap in the years ahead. Byron, can you share with the audience where you can find the six predictions you mentioned in the Bessemer 2020 State of the Cloud Report? I'll route folks, probably the launch point is our website. If you go to bvp.com forward slash cloud, and you'll see in there a number of white papers, documents, and things. This is specifically the 2020 State of the Cloud Report. But I've also referenced, we've referenced the 10 Laws of Cloud Computing. There's also information on the Cloud Index in there, which we run jointly with NASDAQ, with a BVP NASDAQ Emerging Cloud Index, which tracks the public comps. And you can use that and type mCloud on your phone, and you can get the daily ticker of what's happening in, for the 51 cloud stocks. And so there are a lot of entrepreneurial resources there that we've invested a lot in to help with this information sharing. Yeah, I tell you, the amount of content that you put forth to the industry, so valuable. Thank you so much for what you've done for the industry for doing that. And I'm going to wrap up with a little bit of a RevOps Square type question. One of the things that I've always lived by is benchmarks. I wanted to see how similar companies, whether that was size of company, type of distribution model, the buyer segment, the target market segment we're going after enterprise versus commercial versus SMB, and benchmarking how efficient we were doing that, whether that was our payback period against a CAC payback period against others or our net dollar gross dollar retention. How do you recommend entrepreneurs honestly use benchmarks to help inform their decision-making? Be a scholar of the industry <laughs> is probably the best answer. I appreciate uh, quite sincerely, Ray, a lot of the work you've done in information sharing here. You mentioned the KeyBank report that I think is super valuable that the Matrix folks are involved with and David Spitz is very involved with. It's a huge service to the industry. There's Tomas at Redpoint does, you know, some great thoughtful pieces and some of his colleagues do where they publish, you know, some great reports on metrics and analytics and things. And I've got a lot of appreciation for the services that they all do for the industry. And on one hand, you say, hey, they're competitors, but on the other, like, it's a great industry. There are really thoughtful people here that are doing great work. And these are the folks I hope to work with and look to work with together. And so what I would say is, is get as much information as you can. We try to share that. In fact, at the end of our 2020 State of the Cloud report, we even have links to many of these documents that we think are great reports that we want to steer folks to just to share them. And then on the public side, the reason why we created the Cloud Index was so that people can look at the benchmarks in a holistic way. Meritech actually on their website has a great data resource also where you can go through and pull some analytics there. We're going to be updating ours meaningfully in the coming months to allow you to slice and dice more of the public cloud comps. And what I would say is don't get intimidated by the numbers. If you're looking at the public cloud companies, remember that that's the best of the best. And yes, that's your aspirational peer group, but Frankly, being in the bottom quartile of that's still okay and being average for the best of the best is really freaking good. And so use those as a framework 
and ultimately get the most that you can out of your business. And the TAMs and the multiples and the outcomes of these businesses are so spectacular that as founders and as operators, you're going to build a ton of value. You're going to have a fantastic outcome. And even if you fall a little short of a Snowflake or a Zoom or Shopify, chances are you're going to build great value for you and your employees and your families and your investors. And that's the tailwind that we're all benefiting from in cloud and why I quite sincerely believe it is the most compelling slice in tech right now. As increasingly cloud is absorbing and, and eating software, software is consuming tech and more and more cloud software within tech is becoming the fabric of all of technology and GDP more and more and hardware is becoming softer and software is becoming harder and really connectivity is the glue and cloud connectivity is the glue that's bringing value to your Peloton bike and your Tesla car just as as it is this podcast or Zoom session that you're in or you know remote work product that you're using. Yeah, Byron, I think that was really insightful advice. Software is no longer eating the world cloud is eating software and i hope the entrepreneurs and ceos and our listeners appreciate that insight and make it a reality byron thank you so much for joining us today on the metrics that major up podcast always a pleasure ray thank you for having me thank you for listening to today's metrics that measure up podcast if you would like to learn more about b2b SaaS metrics and benchmarks please visit revopsquared.com